So Nehemiah 11 and 12, we've got a lot of ground to cover and uh, taking two chapters and both these chapters are fairly long, but um, we're not going to read every word of these just because there's a lot to talk about and we'll take up way, way too much time uh, if we read every word. But I want to encourage you, of course, as always, to read it if you'd like to. Uh, as you have time. But we're going we're gonna to kind of take this in some sections rather than going straight through. And, um, and so, so just be prepared for that. But one of the things that as we come to the tail end of this series, which we've been in since January through Ezra and Nehemiah, which uh, if you're not familiar with these two books, they were originally one book. They were kind of one collection of, of stories uh, in the Old Testament in the Jewish uh, scriptures. And they were combined because they tell the same story, this from two different angles and also two kind of different time periods. Um, and so there's the, the overall story of Ezra in Nehemiah is that the people of Israel have been in 70 years of captivity in Babylon um, and they have now been allowed to come back to their land as God had promised that they would be. And Ezra and Nehemiah recount that story of returning from Babylon into the, uh, the promised land, their land that God had given them, and rebuilding their lives as a, as a community of faith and as a people, and physically rebuilding the structures that are there, but more importantly, spiritually rebuilding and reforming their lives around God's word, so that with the intention that they don't ever go back into exile again. They, brought, they were brought into exile, if you remember, from Jeremiah and uh, Isaiah because of their rebellion and their disobedience. And so they're kind of getting a fresh start here, and Ezra and Nehemiah tell that story. Um, one of the things that we can learn, I think, from this, as much as it records the history of what happened, we can also see how the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, can continue to follow the model of reforming and rebuilding when we go astray. And I think that's been one of the best things about this, this study is that we, we also find ourselves in the same positions spiritually that they did. Not much changes in terms of human nature, right? And that's as much as we want to believe that we've evolved beyond uh, these, these issues, we really haven't. And if we're honest, we know that. And so Nehemiah uh, gives us a template in some way for how the church of Jesus Christ, those who uh, follow after this, this great God in the scriptures uh, can, can reform our lives and recommit ourselves to him. And so that's really what we're seeing. Um, the, the model that we're seeing through Ezra and Nehemiah both is, is kind of this, this general uh, platform that they reform around God's word. And, and that's where they start. They go back to God's word. And so that tells us that we also have to go back to God's word when we're off the rails. We, they, we see them recommit their lives through repentance, uh, turning from their sin and turning to their savior. And again, something that we are called to do each day as well. And, and we see them uh, in chapter 10, we see them make a recommitment uh, to obey and follow the Lord, to, to see their lives uh, actually marked by what they believe. And so that's where, that's really the general pattern. And there's one more uh, thing I think in this, uh, at least in chapters 11 and 12, there's probably a couple more things we'll point out in the next few weeks, but a couple weeks. But 11 and 12 really hit on an issue that I think is really important for us today as, as it is every, every time in history. And that is to, to be healthy and uh, godly people in a 
healthy and godly church, we need to understand that there can be unity even in diversity. Or another way to say that is there can be fellowship even when we disagree about things. And, and I think that that's something that's so lost in, in, in many ways in our day, at least as a culture, it is. Um, we live in pretty divisive times. I don't think that's a shock to anybody in the room. Um, we've, we've probably always been somewhat divisive in our, in our cultural expressions, but um, maybe it's, uh, there's probably a number of things that are happening now, but social media and the internet hasn't helped. Of course, it seems like things are boiling over a little more than they have in other times. But that said, I'm not here to forecast where all this goes, and it's not my concern really uh, today to be talking about the, the culture broadly that we're living in. But what I do believe is, is something we need to take to heart is this, that no matter where the culture goes, no matter what the world does, the, the church has an opportunity to shine in these days. We have an opportunity to show that we were made for, for more than division. We were made to display a unity that can exist among diverse people and different thoughts and different beliefs even to some degree, right? There's obviously nuance in that. We have to be agreed on the foundational things, the central issues. Um, but outside of that, there's, there's, there's room. And, and there's a great book, if you ever care to talk, dive deeper into this subject, there's a book called uh, Finding the Right Hills to Die On um, by, uh, which Ortland is it? Gavin Ortland, there, there. Thanks, Chris. You were so helpful there. Uh, Gavin Ortland, he wrote this book, and it, it just kind of helps you walk through like what are central issues, what are not central issues, where where can we d- disagree, and as Christian within the context of the Christian faith is really where he takes that. But anyways, that's a side thing. If you're interested in in digging into that more, uh, that's a good resource. But our opportunity here is is to see. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ be unified around Jesus Christ, even when we are distinct and different and diverse in various ways. Uh, And and one of the things that I I think is helpful to to think about this is really that Christianity has, uh, despite all of the denominational differences and all the things that may divide us, there is a central unifying reality in Christianity And C.S. Lewis really pointed this out at one point. He said that even when I feared and detested Christianity, I was struck by its essential unity, which in spite of its divisions, it has never lost. He said, I trembled on recognizing the same unmistakable aroma coming from the writings of Dante and Bunyan, Thomas Aquinas and William Law. Now, if you don't know who any of those names are, that's fine. The point is that these, two, these four people he mentions, Dante, Bunyan, Aquinas, and Law, all were very different theologically, convi- had different convictions. And what Lewis is saying is that even when he was an atheist and, and reckoning with Christianity, he, he, he saw this essential unity that existed in these people's writings, even though they had vehement disagreements on secondary and tertiary issues. And I think that that's a helpful thing that we, we need to recognize, that there's, that there's a calling in the Christian church to be unified around the core issues, and we can have grace for each other in the secondary issues. I think that's what we're going to see in Nehemiah uh, 11 and 12. So let's, let's get into this. And obviously, we, uh, we're going to 
see this in a different kind of context than our own, right? This is a Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant, um, ancient Israel context, but I think the principles we can see of unity in the midst of diversity are, are helpful. So looking at verse one and two of 11, this is where we'll start. I think this, these two verses really just set us on a trajectory to understand what's happening in this chapter. Um, and so it says this, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one of 10 to live in, the, in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Then from chapter, uh, verse three rather, down to verse 24, it is literally an entire list of names. Just a, just a list of names. So uh, I'm gonna spare myself the, the pain and suffering of that. And, uh, and uh, it's like a hundred or something names in this and it's ridiculous. And <laughs> so from our vantage point, um, but, but it's listing out all the names of the people uh, or at least the, the leaders of the subgroups of the people who moved into Jerusalem. So I always make this lame joke about how reading these lists is like reading the phone book, which phone book's not even a thing anymore, so I don't know why I keep using that example, but whatever. It is literally the phone book of Jerusalem, though. That's, that's the point. Like, this is just the people's names of who lived in Jerusalem. And, but the key here is what we're seeing is this. The, the, the city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt the temple was rebuilt during the book of Ezra. The walls to protect Jerusalem have been rebuilt now under Nehemiah. And yet the city largely sits empty. The only people who are living in the city of Jerusalem are the leaders. And now they need to see the city repopulated because what's the point of a city if nobody lives in it, right? And so they, they end up doing this thing where they basically cast lots for one out of 10 or 10% of the population of Israel to move back into Jerusalem, while 90% get to live in the other towns, the villages, the small communities, the farming communities. And uh, I, I find it just interesting that they, they kind of had to like force this on people in some way, right? They had to say, well, we've got to fill this city. One in 10 of you have to come and move into here. So let's cast lots. And the people, it says in verse two, blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So they weren't being arm twisted. They, they willingly did it. Um, but all the other guys were like, we're glad you did that so we didn't have to, right? That's how I'm reading this at least. We don't, I don't have to live in Jerusalem because you chose to, good for you. Um, but, but this is what's interesting about it is that 90% of the people in Israel at this time lived outside the city. They chose small towns. Uh, and then, 10% filled the city. Uh, what, what we're seeing here, uh, well, actually, let's get down to verse 25 and, and just finish up this chapter here because here's the list of the, the villages that existed. So you have Jerusalem and then you have its villages. Verse 25 says, as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kirath Arba and its villages and in Dibon and its villages and in Jechabazil and its villages, and in Jeshua and in Moladah and in Beth Pellet, in Hazar Shalua, in Beersheba and its villages, in Ziglag and um, Mekinah and its villages, 
and Enrimon and Zorah and Jarmuth, uh, Zenoah, Adullam and their villages, Lachish and its fields, Ezekah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward at Michmash, Ayah, Bethel and its villages. Ananoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitiam, Hadid, Zeboam, Nabalat, Lod, and Ono, the valley of craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites in Jerusalem were assigned to Benjamin. So the whole of chapter 11 is talking about the distinction between those who are living in Jerusalem and those who are living in these smaller villages. And what we're seeing is a, is a commitment of 10% of the people to do the urban life thing, to live in that city, to repopulate it, and, and to give life to it. And the remainder of the people decide, no, I'd rather live in the small town. Th- what does this tell us? It tells us something I think that we, we all kind of intuitively understand is that there is a diversity of where people choose to live. And that's, that's good. That's right. Not everybody is called to be in the same place or the same lifestyle that follows that kind of place. Some live in cities, some live in villages, some are on farms. And regardless of where they lived, we know that they are unified around the covenant that they made in chapter 10 before the Lord. What I love about it is that there's a segment of the population that chooses to live the urban life and then most of them live the small town life. And I think that's cool because we've all, well, most of us in this room at least, have chosen to live in a small place, small town, a village, whatever it is. And and I don't know if you're here because you want to be or you're here because you're forced to be or whatever, but I'm here because I want to be and I and I love love this place. Uh, having grown up in the s- suburbs of Chicago, Never really loved that very much. I could say I hated it, and that would be true. But, um, but I definitely didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoy living here. And everybody's, you know, to each their own, right? Like, that's kind of the point. It's like, not everybody has to be into the same things. And we're seeing that even in, in ancient Israel, which is kind of interesting. And so some of you may decide to move elsewhere someday and, and do something else. Um, Hopefully most of you stick around because it's pretty, pretty great here in my view. But um, the, the point here is this, that, that it doesn't really matter ultimately where we choose to live. What matters is that we're centered around Jesus Christ. And I think one of the beautiful things of being part of a network of churches like, like we are is that we get to partner with churches from other parts of not only the world, but other parts of the, the demographic breakdowns. I have many friends who, who serve in churches in large cities. And I love them and they, they love me and I value what they're doing and they value what I'm doing. We're not all called to the same thing, but there's unity around that. And I think, in fact, Jesus himself highlights this and demonstrates it in his own life really beautifully. Um, Jesus was, of course, a small town boy. We could say that. I think he was born in Bethlehem, but didn't spend much time there. Uh, He moved to uh, Egypt for a short time while this crazy guy Herod was trying to kill all the children. 
and uh, his parents got Jesus out to keep him alive and he went to Egypt. Uh, but then after a couple years, they moved and they moved back to a town called Nazareth. And Nazareth, uh, by the time of Jesus's adulthood, uh, I don't know if it was always seen this way, but at least as Jesus was starting his public ministry, there was a little bit of uh, mentality around Nazareth that was like, well, that's not really that impressive of a place. And Nathaniel is an example of this, and I think it's John chapter two, where Nathaniel is told that, that the Messiah is here, the Lamb of God is here, and, and he, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, and Nathaniel says, what, what good comes out of Nazareth? Like there, there's, a, there's a sense of skepticism about Jesus's upbringing because he lived in a town of about 300 people. That was all Nazareth was at that time. And he worked a trade. He lived uh, with a carpenter father and for the first 30 years of his life, presumably, we don't know much about Jesus's young adulthood, but before, before he was 30 outside of his birth and a couple other random events, not much is said about Jesus's childhood or teenage years or any of that. But we can assume that he worked with his dad for the first 30 years of his life and did carpentry. And so he, that was Jesus's first 30 years. And then Jesus came into the public scene and, and here's a verse that I think I, I gravitate to because it just shows the heart of Christ for every place and all the people, regardless of where they are. It's Mark 6:56, and it says this, wherever Jesus came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and any, and as many rather as touched it were made well. Jesus spent his, this is really a summary verse from Mark's perspective of what Jesus did in his ministry. And the, the key to notice is that wherever Jesus came, and then we're given three categories of places, villages, which we would call small towns, cities, cities, right? We don't need to define that too much. And countryside, which is, the English is translated from a Greek word, agra, which basically is translated farm or field, um, but countryside, it's a, it's a rural place. And wherever he went in these categories, whether he was going to the small towns, the cities, or the countryside, he healed people and made them well. And I love that because Jesus loves everybody everywhere. And, and we get to have a diversity of where we live, but a savior who loves us all. And that's a great thing. So that's basically chapter 11, right? Then the, the, the bulk of that chapter is the names. So if we skip over to, or skip down to chapter 12, here's what we're seeing. Uh, we're seeing another giant list of names, um, but in the first half. But the list of names in this case are the priests and the Levites. It says, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel and Yeshua and Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, and, and just on and on the names go. So you have Levites, you have priests, um, and, and here's, I think, what's being described here. Uh, it's the diversity or the differences of leadership gifts and roles in the, in the church. Not everybody was a priest, not everybody was a Levite. These people were called to a specific type of ministry. We also see uh, in uh, chapter 11 and uh, 
chapter 12, the rest of chapter 12, we'll see here in a moment. We also see that there's other positions too. There's gatekeepers, there's overseers, there's craftsmen, there's musicians. The musicians will come in at the end of chapter 12 here. We see that there's this variety of ways that people are called to serve the church, the people of God. And so we're being given this long, long list in this chapter of all those people who served as priests and Levites throughout this whole time of returning from Babylon, going way back to the beginning of it and and moving forward. There's this long list of names. But I think the point that we can learn from this is that not everybody is called to exactly the same thing or the same kind of ministry. We see that some people are are called to be priests and Levites in the Old Testament. Others are called to be craftsmen, to build things, farmers, to grow things. there's, There's a call in various lives for various reasons. And as we get into the New Testament on this, we see that this is a theme that carries through all of the the New Testament as well, that there is a variety of gifts within the body of Christ. And in fact, we need that variety of gifts, that the church is dysfunctional if it doesn't have a variety of people with variety of of gifts and and passions and, and talents. This is what Paul's point is to the Corinthians in verse, 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 4 through 13, here's, here's what he writes. He says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each of these people who have been gifted in different ways are gifted by the Spirit for the common good of the church. Skipping down a bit, it says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For one Spirit, we are all For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The the Apostle Paul makes this very clear that, that not everyone has to be doing the same kind of thing. And if we did, we'd be a pretty dysfunctional group of people. And he uses this analogy of the human body to help us understand that, right? Our, all of our bodies, you have a body, the body you have is made up of lots of different parts. Some you can see on the outside, some you, that you can't see on the inside. They all play roles to keep you alive and healthy and active. And, and if everything in your body just did one function, it wouldn't be a human body, right? And that's, that's where we see Paul making the point. The body, though it's one, is many. And though it's many, it's one. And so it is with Christ, he says. That the church has one God, one Savior. We have one unified uh, God that we come together, but we all have a variety of gifting, of service, of activities. And this is to be celebrated, not to be put down. Paul also makes that same point where he talks about the, the ludicrousness of the idea of your body criticizing other parts of your body, right? If your eye was to say, 
man, that ear is so stupid. Look at that thing. Look at how dumb that looks, right? Look at what it's, it's useless. Like, it would never do that because the eye can't do what the ear can do. And Paul makes that point uh, in, in that same passage. And so here, here's what we're seeing. In, in the first, really, first chapter today, chapter 11, the first half of 12, we're, we're just getting a picture of how this worked. It's not really prescriptive, it's, it's descriptive. It's explaining what was happening in ancient Israel during this time. But we're learning something that, that can be applied to us, which is there is a variety of, of gifts and callings in our lives. In, in the second half of chapter 12, which I'm going to read a, a bit more, more of because we're, we're past all the, all the names, not all the names actually, unfortunately, but most of the names, um, but what we're seeing in chapter 20, uh, verse 27 of 12 through the end is the dedication of the walls around Jerusalem. That, they, that all of this work has been accomplished and now they're dedicating it as a, as a community to the work of the Lord. And here's, um, here's what it says, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmareth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. So all the singers wanted to just hang out with other singers, I guess, and they all just made this little weird commune that they all hung out in. Okay, kind of sounds like parts of New York. Um, the, the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall this is Nehemiah speaking here, when he says I, um, and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the walls to the dung gate. Oh, who had to draw the short straw for the, to be the choir at the dung gate? I don't know, but <laughs> things to be them. Okay, and after them went Hoshiah and, thanks Crystal, you, you got that. All right, um, and half the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Machiah, son of Zechur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azrael, Meliah, Giliah, uh, Mei, Nathanael, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and I followed with them, uh, half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall uh, and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gates of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, that doesn't sound like it smells great either, so I guess Nehemiah takes one for the team too, and the tire, uh, tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred 
to the sheep gate and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half the officials with me and the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Miniman, no idea what this was, Micaiah, yeah, there we go, Eloianai, Zechariah, and Hanani with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoanan, Malchiah, uh, Elam, and Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezreha and their leaders, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God. And served and service of purification, as did the singers and gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Okay, so there's chapter 12. Now, um, again, we're seeing this reinvigoration of worship happening. Now that all the work has been completed, now that it's all done, the, the, the temple's been rebuilt, the, the altar's been rebuilt, that all happened in, in the book of Ezra. Nehemiah's finished the city of Jerusalem. Now they're reinstituting the worship of God through music and through singing. And they bring up David here. They talk about these, these men who died long ago and they're just reinvigorating their hearts to joy again. And, and I think that that is uh, such a great thing. But even as we read through this, we're seeing the people of Israel doing a variety of tasks, having a variety of of callings. Some of these people are singing. Some of these are playing instruments. Some of them are, are pr- pr- uh, bringing about the sacrifices of their priests and Levites. All of these things are happening and, and it's a great thing and it all comes together in unison. I, I think that this issue that we're seeing here of, of diversity or variety of, of people and gifting within the unity that they have around Jesus is a prototype of what the church would be. The church is meant to be a picture of unity in a world that's so divisive. The church should look differently than everything else. It should. It, it, it's, it's something that is meant to proclaim the unity we have around our Savior. Jesus tells us this as he was on earth and he was teaching. He, of course, he lived and he died and he rose, but he tells us in John chapter 10 that, that all of that, all that he was doing was meant to bring people into one uh, flock under himself. John 10, 14 through 18, here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also 
and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Um, Jesus is making the point here that there's, there's a whole bunch of individual sheep and every sheep is known by Jesus. Every one of us is known by name. Every one of us is known and we know him, but, but we are all brought together under his leadership as one flock. The, the mention here of I have sheep that are not of this fold refers to the Gentiles at, in this point in time, um, to us who are not of the Jewish uh, lineage. He's gonna bring everybody together under one flock, under one shepherd. And Jesus says he does this by laying down his life for the sheep. The apostle Paul also fleshes this out a bit more in Ephesians 4. Here's what he, here's what he says. Uh, I'll, I'll turn there. And Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, uh, we'll, we'll probably uh, just look at a couple sections of this. But uh, verse 1 to 6, here's what Paul says. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, so he's saying walk or live in a way that is worthy of your calling. Well, how do we do that? Well, he doesn't leave us to wonder. He tells us how in verse two. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. To, to bear with one another is to stick with people even when they're difficult to be with. And we're to do that in love. And then verse three, he says, we should be eager, eager to maintain the unity, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is our one savior. He is our, our, our one central thing that we are unified around. But Paul tells us we are to be eager to maintain the unity, to maintain the unity. I think that phrase is important to think about for a second here. Unity does not just happen. I think that's the point. Unity is not just gonna magically occur. It has to be something that is eagerly pursued and maintained. To maintain something is to stay on top of it, to keep fixing things when they're broken. Right? If you have a home and you don't maintain it, eventually that home starts to fall apart. Maintenance is a part of having a house that's gonna last a long time and it's by fixing things when they break. And, and so the idea of maintaining unity I think is crucial here because it's not just okay, plop down in here and we're, we're gonna just be unified no matter what. No, it actually is gonna always be that we're working against unity because we're sinners. We're always gonna try to pursue our own agendas if we're not being humble and gentle and patient. If we're not following what Jesus calls us to do. And so here we have this reminder from Paul that there is one body in Christ. We're all in us together, but we have a responsibility to walk in a way 
that honors Jesus through humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and being eager to maintain the unity. He goes on to say in verse 11 through 16, he says, and and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we are no longer to be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So here we're seeing a variety of gifts that God gives to the church to help the church keep this unity intact and help us all to mature to to manhood, as as Paul says here, so that we're not like just gullible children going wherever the wind wind blows. I think at the bottom bottom line, what we're seeing here is that Jesus has given us gifts to to keep us uh, unified, and it's the Bible, and it's the church, and these are these are the two things that God has given us: the apostles and prophets. That's mentioned here is the Bible as we understand it and you know, see it from our vantage point. The apostles and prophets wrote the Bible, Old and New Testament. And then we have the church, which is the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers that are mentioned here. And we have these, these gifts from God to help us maintain the unity. So ultimately in this passage, we're called to grow up, to stop pursuing just our own wants and desires, to be mature, to be self-sacrificial. In other words, to be like Jesus. And Jesus died to bring us to that point and he, and he gives us his spirit to mature us and grow as we walk with him and with one another. And, and I think that one of the biggest things we can do to, to show maturity in our Christian walk is to keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we make Christianity about anything other than the work of Christ, the good news that he lived and died and rose again for our sins, we've missed the whole point. So again, I'm going to bring you to C.S. Lewis. You guys should just probably read all of his stuff so I don't have to keep saying this, but, um, but no, I'm just kidding. I love it. I love this. C.S. Lewis wrote screw tape letters, and, and again, I'm not going to belabor what the point is, but he, he talks about how the, the issue of spiritual temptation that's he's, that he's unpacking in that book is to kind of bring about in us uh, a, a spiritual attack that teaches us that it is Christianity and that we should be pursuing. Christianity and, not just Christianity. So he gives a few examples, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform, whatever that is. He says, if they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. That's obviously, he's, he's making the, the, the point that that's the opposite of what we should be doing. And, and we, we shouldn't be Christians with a difference. We should just be Christians and, and, and follow Jesus and love one another 
And I know that there are lots of things that we can disagree on. We can. And it's okay to disagree on things. But we have to do that within the context of unity around the main things, which is Jesus Christ and his word. If we can at least agree on that, then then there's not a whole lot else that we need to dip out about and divide over. We, we can stay together in this. And I think we're seeing that, that play out biographically in Israel's history in Nehemiah, but we're seeing that as the heart of what Jesus has done by giving the spirit to the church. Let's shoot for that. Let's be eager to maintain the unity in the bond of peace because that's what will set us apart from all the craziness outside of, of, of our lives if we keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us, that you came into this world to be our good shepherd, to lay down your life for the sheep. And each of us, Lord, confess that we are lost sheep in need of your saving work. And we pray that you would not only that you not only have brought us, many of us, most of us, into saving faith, but that you keep us there and you, you pursue us um, even through our foolishness. We pray you would help us as a church to maintain unity, that we would be eager to do so, that we would love one another as you love us, and that we would be um, a church that, that tr- truly is about the main things even in the midst of our disagreements and differences on all kinds of issues, would you keep us centered on you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.